I'm in a neighborhood cinema in 1951. The picture is The Painted Hills, the seventh and final Lassie film from MGM Studios. And there's Shep, that's Lassie's character's name. America's favorite rough collie has escaped the clutches of the villain at the snowy mountaintop. Cold and exhausted, she finally returns to her best human friend, Tommy Blake, and proceeds to lick his face like it was slathered in chopped liver from the Second Avenue Deli. Fade out, and the end. With the release of The Painted Hills, MGM announced it was out of the Lassie business. But, yes, there was still unfinished business. Which had to do with Rudd Weatherwax, the owner and trainer of PAL, known to millions as Lassie, and owner-trainer of eight subsequent Lassies, all male. Why all males? Call it Hollywood body shaming, 50s style. As the Orlando Sentinel reported, the female collie goes into heat twice a year, at which time she sheds much of her coat, causing hair and makeup issues for filmmakers. And what's this about Rudd Weatherwax? Seems MGM still owed him some $40,000 in back pay. And that's when they made a deal. In lieu of cash, Weatherwax could have the rights to the Lassie name and trademark. If this had happened a decade earlier, Weatherwax might have been lucky to tour Lassie through county fairs and supermarket openings. But this was the 1950s, the dawn of popular television. A meeting or five later, Pal was back on screen, the small one this time. In 1954, two TV pilots were shot in Calgary, Alberta. One of them was titled The Well. Now, okay, timeout. The host is taking a timeout. A little myth-busting here. Nowhere in all Lassiedom will you find a story of Timmy falling down a well and Lassie running to get help. In this episode, at a remote well, it's young Jeff, not Timmy, who encounters bad guys. One of them played by future Leave It to Beaver dad, Hugh Beaumont, of all people. That's when Jeff sends Lassie for help. It's the same ones, Lassie. Go back to the house and get Gramps. I'll sneak up on them and watch what they're doing. Thither goes Lassie to warn Gramps. Father, father! Nothing's happened to Jeff. Look at it. What is it, girl? Is it Jeff? 70-year-old spoiler alert, everything works out for Lassie and Jeff. Once the pilots were complete, Pal the Rough Collie was retired from the role. Once CBS greenlit the series, Lassie began a 19-year television run with a succession of nine weatherwax collies in the starring role. 19 years. By the time the series went off the air, Jeff actor Tom Reddig was 33 and long since out of the acting game. And with that, Lassie Get Help became one of television's mightiest tropes. A trope firmly rooted in reality. Today, in every part of the world, service dogs are being trained and certified to guide the visually and hearing impaired. 
And now science is exploring new frontiers in canine capability. A growing body of evidence suggests dogs can be trained to sense a growing list of health conditions, including the onset of seizures, heart attacks, and strokes, and in many cases, to go find help. I'm Bud Bacone, and I'm about to introduce you to a whole new generation of service dogs and the growing, often unexpected range of breeds being deployed. Can you say service chihuahua? There have been dogs as long as there have been people. Cookies! This dog was going places. Fast. The American Kennel Club. Kennel Club. Take your dog down and back for me, please. Down and Back, stories from the AKC archives. This is the show for you. With Bud Bacone. This puppy has potential. Meet Buddy, the world's first guide dog. Introducing the world's first guide dog, Lux of LaSalle. History's first guide dog, Rolf trained by Lambert A. Kreimer of Burbank in 1916. Newspaper archives are packed with stories of the first guide dogs for the visually impaired. Alas, most of those reports are bullshit. We know that because you and I recently toured the early history of guide dogs, and we know there's evidence of dogs guiding blind humans as early as 2,000 years ago. We know that guide dogs are depicted in medieval art, and that schools for training guide dogs were opened in Austria and France at least two centuries ago, and we learned that the sheer number of people blinded many from mustard gas in World War I heightened demand for guide dogs to help otherwise healthy veterans back into the workforce. That's when training schools for guide dogs sprung up in Europe, inspiring a Saturday Evening Post article in November 1929, which captured the popular imagination here and led to America's Morris Frank, blind since his youth, to import a German shepherd dog named Buddy as his guide dog. As if we hadn't learned a ton by then, we also discovered that in the early 1930s, U.S. Senator Thomas D. Shaw, long since blinded in a freak cigar lighting accident, you had to be there, championed a bill requiring that guide dogs for the blind be permitted in public places such as restaurants and hotels. From then, guide dogs have helped transform the American landscape and so many American lives. Yet for much of the 20th century, something was missing. We humans simply didn't recognize the vast number of ways canines can assist us. It would be up to the canines themselves to educate us. And if dogs could provide a surrogate pair of eyes for the visually impaired, why not train other dogs to help the hearing impaired? A dog could alert a hearing impaired mother to a crying baby, stove timer, or a knock at the door. In October 1976, an experiment was launched on the Lenox campus of Holliston Junior College in Massachusetts. With support from the local Lions Club, students in the animal care program set about training dogs to serve as four-legged prosthetic ears for human partners. By that time, 
a separate organization had launched a very similar training program in Dallas, Texas. This one promoted by actor June Lockhart, animal activist and TV mom to Lassie's Timmy for six seasons. As a result of yet another program, University at Buffalo undergrad Wanda Miller roamed the campus with her sable sheltie Jed, who alerted her when certain people called her name and drew her attention to specific sounds. Hearing dog groups were popping up all over America. Their success stories and positive press inspired more groups with fresh success stories, all of which has contributed to the myth that humans discovered the potential of hearing dogs in the 1970s. Why is it a myth? I'll show you what we mean. Follow me to the archives. A quick look through these albums of digital clippings tells the story. Uh, here, in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, a story about Leonard Morton, who learned to depend on the ears of his Doberman pincher Lana, who would nudge him when the doorbell rings. The date? June 12, 1949. Uh, Santa Rosa, California, seven years earlier, November 42. There's a filler piece on uh, Mrs. Esther Masters and how she depends on her hearing dog Mitzi, a Boston Terrier, to alert her to household noises and visitors. Uh, Aberdeen, North Carolina, 1938. Engineer Fred Lewis depends on his mixed-breed rags to indicate when the pumps at the city water station start and stop. When that happened, Rags' signal was to take his tail in his teeth and chase it in circles a few times. Many hearing dog organizations date back to the 70s, but hearing dogs themselves have been a thing for generations. (coughs) Digital dust. (sighs) Because their duties are quite different from guide dogs to the blind and visually impaired, hearing dogs can be recruited from a range of breeds, large, small, and often unlikely. A chihuahua, for instance, from the toy group isn't well-suited to guide a blind human through a train station. But then, meet Apple Pie, a chihuahua rescue who became the surrogate ears of Oregon's Judy Springborn. When an alarm clock rings, a parcel is delivered, or a oven timer sounds, or maybe all three... Apple Pie will find Springborn and rest two paws on her, waiting for acknowledgement. Once received, she'll lead Springborn to the source of the sound. But even the rapid growth of hearing dogs couldn't overcome the obstacles of acceptance and accessibility. That couldn't happen until Congress got its act together. You're listening to Down and Back, stories from the AKC Archives. And now I sign legislation which takes a sledgehammer to another wall. One which has... On July 26, 1990, President Bush the Elder signed the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, a law which included widespread accessibility for service dogs. We will not accept, we will not excuse, we will not tolerate discrimination in America. 
the ADA is the progeny of the civil rights movement a quarter century earlier. The movement to end discrimination now extended to include those with disabilities and the canines they depend on. For the purpose of the ADA, a service dog is defined as a dog individually trained to do work or perform tasks for an individual with a disability. It does not classify therapy, comfort, or companion dogs as service animals. A service dog within the act cannot be prohibited from joining a human in line at a salad bar or self-serve food line. The two cannot be relegated to a special hotel room or charged an additional fee for housekeeping. Now here's where it gets nuanced. Service dogs by ADA definition do not require any special certification or registration, except for those that local laws require of any pet, such as a dog license. The canines are not required to wear special vests, and they do not require third-party professional training. In other words, it's up to the human to ensure that they have the right dog with the right training in relation to the disability. Just as important is the service dog's ability to focus on its work without distraction. AKC's Canine Good Citizen title gives you a good idea of what we mean. Though not a program specific to service dogs, it's designed to demonstrate a canine's ability to meet a high behavioral standard. Just how high is the bar? Let's illustrate. We've just conducted a side-by-side -side urban canine good citizen test. Our first candidate is a two-year-old Akita named Candy. Taking the test at the same time is our own down-and-back sound designer, Josh. Both had to pass a demanding 10-point test. It includes exiting, entering doorways with no pulling, walking on a busy sidewalk without distraction, responding appropriately to noises, different surfaces, and moving objects, stopping, waiting, and crossing streets properly, ignoring food on the sidewalk, reacting properly to someone petting them, walking under control in a dog-friendly public building, proper handling on stairs and in elevators, being house-trained for city living, and demonstrating proper behavior in cars and on a subway. Candy's evaluation, 10 out of 10. Only a perfect score qualifies her for the urban CGC. Josh, meanwhile, hmm, well, he came close. Which one tripped mm. you up this time, Josh? Mm. The food on the sidewalk challenge. Yeah. Oh, I think this is ham. That one. Again. As owners and trainers struggled to keep the bar high for the performance and behavior of service dogs, science is slowly uncovering extraordinary new canine capabilities. Consider the case of Elizabeth Rudy. It was 1992 when she made her story public. Rudy was a Seattle-based veterinarian prone to epileptic seizures, and she had become convinced that her golden retriever, Ribbon, was able to sense that a seizure was coming. If Ribbon was on a leash, she would stop what she's doing, and her ears would drop down. If they were inside, she would lick Rudy's hands and sit looking at her. Sometimes she would whine. Within a few minutes, Elizabeth Rudy would experience the sensation of smelling burning flesh, the signal that a seizure was coming. 
Less than a minute later, Rudy would start walking in circles, bumping into things, not conscious of what she was doing. 1,900 miles away, Carrie Harrison of Ypsilanti, Michigan, noticed that her four-year-old Welsh corgi, Owen, would change his behavior moments before she realized she was having a seizure. If walking with her, he would stop and just sit looking at her. When she realized what was happening, she would sit down beside him. Often, he'd begin licking her face. After years of similar stories emerged, a nonprofit called Medical Mutts conducted a series of tests. In 2018, five dogs of different breeds were trained to identify and respond to the scent of someone who's having or had just experienced a seizure. Using cotton swabs, samples were taken from the skin of people the dogs had never met. Select samples were taken from people who were experiencing or had just experienced a seizure. In a test room, Samples were placed in seven identical cans, one being the seizure scent. One by one, the dogs were brought into the room to zero in on that one can, knowing a reward would follow. Scientific reports published the findings. Three of the dogs located the correct can 100% of the time, the other dogs who had less training scored 60%. It's reckoned that the human body emits hundreds of odors, many mercifully subtle, detectable to the canine nose. What these so-called medic alert canines do is learn to home in on just one of them, in the same way you and I might identify someone we know in a crowded restaurant. The dog is then trained to react in a certain way. It's some of the strongest anecdotal evidence to date that dogs can literally sniff out a seizure. The pesky word there is anecdotal. A scientific finding of we really, really think so won't get any tails wagging on a Nobel committee. To gain a thumbs up from the broader medical community, researchers need to identify the biochemistry behind what dogs can do. As that work continues, organizations such as Handy Chien in France are putting Le Col Avant Le Cheval. They're training and placing seizure-sniffing dogs with human partners, which isn't to take away from highly trained canines whose job is to react when their human has a seizure. Some are trained to lie down beside them to help protect them from injury. Some are trained to place their body between their human and the floor to help break their fall and some are trained to trigger a device that signals for help. As for the science of dogs sniffing out medical conditions, much of the research is recent, but the idea ain't new. Some 2,400 years ago, Hippocrates theorized that odors, especially in a person's urine, can reflect disease. Human noses have been an instrument of medical diagnosis ever since. Only recently has attention turned to canines in a medical alert role. Olfactory superstars whose noses pack 20 times more scent receptors than a human schnoz. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, yes, you in the back. What's taking sides so long to look into this? Well, two theories on that. One, as we've discussed in the past, is that the institution of service dogs is relatively new. It took a world war to inspire the large-scale training, 
deployment and in time, the normalization of guide dogs for the blind and visually impaired. And two, there isn't yet a technology that can replicate the canine sense of smell. Research teams are working on it, but the latest reports suggest that, well, wait, uh, let's ask. How's it going in there? No, no, need more time. Thought so. Oh, and a third point. Oh, 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 oh. Yes. You said two theories. All right. Theory 2A. The relationship between canines and humans has changed. Only in the last few generations have dogs really gravitated from the shed to the bed. Where they used to be outdoor animals, they've moved indoors with their humans. In this closer, more familiar daily relationship, humans have been better placed to notice their dog's superhuman perceptive powers and to create a whole new class of working dogs. Consider the story of Emily. She was six when she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. By the time she reached her teens, she had on four occasions slipped into diabetic ketoacidosis, a diabetic coma. Enough was enough. Eventually, she was paired with Coda, an 18-month-old Labrador retriever trained to smell when Emily's blood sugar was too high, too low, or just right, and to alert her to take action. Though Emily carries equipment to monitor her blood sugar, she's discovered that Coda can warn her of an imbalance as much as a half hour before the gizmo registers anything. Coda sounds the alarm through what's called trained disobedience. When something's wrong, he'll touch her with his paw. If she ignores him, he'll jump on her. If she doesn't react, he'll go find a friend or a family member to tell, and he'll stay in that alert mode until Emily's blood sugar is back at normal level. 700 miles away, in Enid, Oklahoma, Joy and Taylor Buckminster were exhausted. Their three-year-old daughter, Kaylee, was also diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And because her condition could fluctuate so quickly, her parents had to set an alarm every two hours through the night to monitor their daughter's blood sugar. It soon took a toll on their REM sleep. That's when they were paired with Memphis, an eight-month-old canine trained to serve as an early warning system, alerting Kaylee's parents to changes. Similar stories are playing out in cities and towns worldwide. So-called medic alert service dogs are being trained and deployed to use inherent gifts that are widely accepted, but not scientifically proven. And not just for detecting seizures and blood sugar levels. Growing evidence, still largely anecdotal, suggests that dogs often change their behavior just prior to the onset of a migraine headache in their human. Others can detect an oncoming bout of narcolepsy, which can overtake humans with a sudden attack of sleep and even a loss of muscle control. Some dogs, it is believed, can anticipate a cardiac emergency. Others may detect the onset of specific types of cancer. And as you might guess, Dogs have been in training for the past couple of years to detect strains of the COVID virus. You remember when we were hauling Which brings out? us back to Lassie. We didn't want to leave you imagining that the character played by Leave It to Beaver TV dad Hubo Mont was actually a villain. In the tag scene, 
he pops by to announce that he quit as lawyer to the bad guy and recovered the deed to the stolen half acre of the Miller's farm. The Miller's, in gratitude, shake his hand. First Grandpa, then Jeff, then Mom, then, of course, Lasky. Neither would we want to leave you thinking that the skill set of a wicked smart rough collie was limited to warning Grandpa Miller that someone's fallen down a well, though that's the sort of task long since instilled in many service dogs. Not when we know that they, like so many breeds of service dogs, can serve as a canine prosthesis, providing hearing or vision that their humans lack, or that their hypersensitive olfactory skills can help change or even save lives. Anything yet? We need more time even if science can't yet explain how. Down and Back, stories from the AKC archives. Visit akc.org for more on all things dog and find bonus materials for this episode. Follow AKC on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at American Kennel Club. On Twitter at AKC Dog Lovers. And let us know what you thought of the show. And let us know what you thought of the show. If you're new around here, subscribe with your favorite podcast provider to catch up on this season and past episodes. Founded in 1884, the American Kennel Club is the recognized and trusted expert in breeds, health, and training. We advocate for responsible dog ownership and are dedicated to advancing dog sports. Research for Down and Back is provided by the AKC Library and Archives, the only national repository dedicated to the sport and enjoyment of the purebred dog. Learn more about the collections at akc.org library. There's always a wise guy. <laughs>